What is up? This is Tom's, and today we're going to finish off chapter 41 in our Genesis podcast. But really quickly, yesterday we left Joseph in Pharaoh's presence, where he had just interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, predicted seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine, and Joseph pitches this idea that they should find this wise and intelligent person, raise them up to a place of power so that they can be in charge of their efforts to gather and store resources and grain during the plenty years so that they can be prepared for the years of famine. That said, Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court, and all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a rank higher than yours. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. Then he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for his second-in-command. And wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, Kneel down! So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh but no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. Then Pharaoh gave Joseph a new Egyptian named, named Zaphonath Paneah. He also gave him a wife, whose name was Asenath. She was the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On. So Joseph took charge of the entire land of Egypt. He was 30 years old when he began serving in the court of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And when Joseph left Pharaoh's presence, he inspected the entire land of Egypt. As he predicted, for seven years the land produced bumper crops. During those years, Joseph gathered all the crops grown in Egypt and stood, stored the grain from the surrounding fields in the cities. He piled up huge amounts of grain, like sand on the seashore. Finally, he stopped keeping records because there was too much to measure. During this time, before the first of the famine years, Two sons were born to Joseph and his wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On. Joseph named his older son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. Joseph named his second son Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. At last, the seven years of bumper crops throughout the land of Egypt came to an end. Then the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had predicted. The famine also struck all the surrounding countries. But throughout Egypt, there was plenty of food. Eventually, however, the famine spread throughout the land of Egypt as well. And when the people cried out to Pharaoh for food, he told them, Go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. So with severe famine everywhere, Joseph opened up the storehouses and distributed the grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout the land of Egypt. And people from all around the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe throughout the world. Mr. Vice President, VP of Agriculture, Secretary of the Interior, 
Mr. Zafanath Panaya, or in English, Mr. God Speaks and Lives. That doesn't really roll off the tongue so well. Probably didn't in Egypt, Egyptian either. But uh, I don't, those may have been his titles. We don't know if he was the lone vice president or if it was kind of like a company where you have a lot of vice presidents over different areas, but he was powerful, the second in command. And he was only 30 years old, achieving such a high-ranking position with a wife from an incredibly important family, too. Of course, he had been through the toughest character development school there is. It's called Suffering. And it either wrecks us or it purifies us. Somehow, Joseph avoided bitterness, and he kept rising to the top of every situation he found himself in. There's an interesting and troubling irony in this story that I'm not totally sure what to do with. A quick check at some of the other commentators uh, out on the, uh, the web, and it looks like there's a divided camp when it comes to Joseph's economic policies. A 20% tax during a time of abundance and a bull market isn't too crazy for any time in history or any governmental system for that matter. They were able to stock away more surplus than they could count. The problem comes when Joseph redistributes the supplies of grain during the bear market, during the famine, and he essentially buys the entire population into slavery. He creates the very conditions that would lead his own people into a brutal and demoralizing slavery for hundreds of years. It's just so messy. Even the winds and the highs in this book come with this mixed bag of problems. But I'll just leave you with the little conundrum that I don't have a solution for. And I'd invite you to follow me where my mind tends to wander. For Joseph, there was this massive exoneration. He ends up on top. He's used by God in dramatic and heroic fashion. And I think God enjoys that under the underdog story of raising up the kid you'd least expect to incredible heights. But I also think God is equally content to call people to slug it out in the pit, in the dungeon, falsely accused and forgotten, without ever seeing the rags to riches ending. And his desire, in either case, is the, that we would learn faithfulness, that we would choose joy and positivity and love, that in so choosing, we would be formed more and more into his likeness. I can't help but think back to our time last summer, reading through the book, The Insanity of God. And if you haven't read that book, by the way, you need to get it or download it today and make that your next read. It's that good, and it's that important. But one of the nuggets that surfaced out of that book, for me, was the realization, uh, actually by thousands of Chinese followers of Jesus, who have endured imprisonment and suffering, what they learned was that you can't grow in captivity what you don't already have. The seeds of character that one takes into difficult circumstances and then plants there, and then eventually gives fruit that will be grown throughout these trials and temptations. We're facing some pretty difficult times right now. If anyone ends up listening to these in the future, 
We're on the front end of the great coronavirus pandemic of 2020, or whatever it will end up being called. Although I can't imagine people stumbling onto these podcasts and going through them devotionally 10 years from now, I'm still fascinated to wonder and imagine how this situation will be assessed and explained in the future, looking back on this historical moment. But for now, we have no idea how bad this whole thing is going to get, either health-wise or economically. As far as I know, no one was given a seven-year heads-up so that we could be prepared for what's going on right now. All we've had is a couple of weeks to maybe a couple of months heads-up as it's begun to spread out of the East. But the decisions we're making right now will be grown and will bear fruit on the other side of adversity. So I'm trying to take stock right now of the decisions that I'm making. How will I choose to spend my time when my choices of what to do have been so greatly narrowed? With the freedoms I do have, will I choose to leverage them on myself or look to sacrifice for my neighbor and even for the multitudes of neighbors who don't even live anywhere near me? Am I willing to live a faithful life in obscurity no matter what the outcome? Will I choose to pull everything tight and get or save what I can for me and those closest to me? Or will I be open-handed and generous? Will my outlook go tunnel vision because of scarcity? Or will my horizons broaden in the wide open expanse of God's abundance? Those are my questions. That's where I'm at right now. That's my headspace. And I'm trying to figure out Holy Spirit, how are you shaping me? I'm asking that Holy Spirit right now, leading that right into prayer. How are you shaping me? How are you shaping all of us? What are you calling us to? What is the reality beyond the reality that maybe we're blind to because of whatever? Um, but it's your reality the abundance, the healing, the kingdom that is both now and not yet. Lord, would you please give us the faith and the faithfulness to step into unknowing, unknowable days, uncertain circumstances with courage, with humility with love that extends to every enemy or every person of a different opinion that we have um, with hearts of generosity. God, grow those things in us during this time. May we come through this season having tasted and seen how wonderful, how good, and how powerful you are. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.